You know, I wanted to have you. I saw you with Chris Hedges on Brianna's uh, podcast, and I wanted to have you because obviously, you know, most of the focus has been on the withdrawal from Afghanistan and, you know, the neocons are, you know, huffing and puffing at this. Uh, obviously, there's, you know, unfortunately, an attack on the airport today. And uh, so far, uh, 12 American soldiers uh, have died from this. But in all of this, there seems to be this continual narrative that everything's groovy, everything's getting back to normal, uh, the jobs are coming back. Uh, I mean, without you know, Cory Bush and certain progressives, uh, it was just assumed that oh no, we don't need this moratorium anymore for evictions. But I look at the numbers and I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, I look at the numbers and I have seen most of the jobs coming back seem to be uh, you know retail hospitality hospitality, not exactly great living wage jobs. I see in the coming weeks on September 6th, federal unemployment expansion is set to end that extra $300. You know, some states have already ended it, but a lot of states didn't. Uh, and I also see not to trigger, you know, the, uh, you know, people who have opinions on COVID. I also see cases surging all over the country in certain states pediatric hospital beds uh, full with children. So I'd like to ask you, um, is this the right time to be, you know, discontinuing unemployment or not adding things as the economy is so vulnerable? Yeah, let me, uh, let me respond by putting it a little bit in context. To assess an economy, in other words, to, to give some sort of summary judgment about whether an economy is doing well or poorly, getting better, deteriorating, or however you would like to characterize an overall summary. Uh, it's a little bit like going, if you allow me a metaphor, going to the doctor and making that standard joke, doc, how am I doing? And hoping that the doc, uh, after some effort, can give you a sense of how you're doing. Now, suppose the doctor stuck a thermometer in your mouth, read off the temperature of your body, and said, oh, 98.6, fine, you're good, bye-bye, see you in three months, or six months, or next year. Hopefully, excuse me, you would understand that you need a new doctor, because that's not adequate. You really need a doctor to look at all, or at least many, of the important indices of how you're doing. And a good doctor will do that. He'll check you out all over, do some blood tests, look at your urine, you know, all the usual things that people who go to doctors are aware constitute an examination. But suppose the doctor wasn't a doctor. Suppose the doctor was in the business of selling you aspirins. You might then understand, you wouldn't like it, if he did the kind of summary thing that would allow him to say, and therefore you need to take more aspirins. When you ask a political leader, especially one in office, how the economy is doing, it's a little bit like the aspirin story. This politician is knows that he or she is going to be held accountable because that's what Americans do. They hold politicians accountable. They shouldn't. It's a mistake, but they do. 
And therefore, the politician is in a very difficult position. The reality is politicians don't control the economy. They never did. At best, they can nudge it a little more this way, a little that way. But believe me, whatever they do, afterwards, when the camera isn't rolling, they cross their fingers and pray and hope that what they said they were doing for the following reason will actually come to pass. And you know something? Sometimes it does, and often it doesn't, and they've got the press release ready to blame somebody else when it doesn't. So my answer is, when you hear this stuff about the economy recovering, it's people who are looking at an index that seems to be a reasonable basis for saying that. That's all. They're not telling you about all the indices that point the other way, because that would be to undermine their interest in how people see this. So let me make it very concrete. Is unemployment or did unemployment until recently go down? Yes, it did. And that can be pointed to as something that makes it legitimate to say the economy is in not as bad shape on that as it was six or 12 months ago. But if I said to you, okay, well, tell me a little bit about inequality. Well, inequality has gotten markedly worse over the last six to 12 months. And it would be easy if you give me 10 minutes, which I know we don't have, but if you did, I would explain to you why inequality is every bit as important a determiner of what's going to happen in the next year or two as unemployment numbers ever were or are. So what we end up seeing is a kind of stupid debate in which the people who need the economy to look good pick out those indices which make that a plausible claim, and the politicians that are out of office and want to get in do the opposite. And the way you can see it is to watch. When Mr. Trump was out of office, he debunked everything that his Democratic predecessor did. And when he was in office, he took credit for everything he debunked in his predecessor. It's, I mean, and it's a never-ending game. I don't mean to pick on Mr. Trump, however pleasurable that may be. Uh, he's not different from the others in doing this. So. If you're asking me my judgment, I look at the mixed bag because indices are always mixed. It's never all one way or all the other. But if you take a look at the broad collection of meaningful indices that I find meaningful, then I would say something as stark to you as the following. This is the worst shape of the American economy that I have seen in my lifetime. The problems we have, the infrastructure that doesn't work, the level of debt. Our corporations are now in debt on a scale we have never seen in the history of this country. Something on the order of one-fifth of large corporations are now called on Wall Street zombie corporations. That word, in this, in this sense, means it's a company whose net revenue, that is the money they get in uh, from which you've subtracted the cost of doing whatever they produce, is not enough to cover their debt. So they are, strictly speaking, defunct. 
And the only way they can survive, which they do, is by borrowing more money now to cover the interest and amortization of the debts they already have. This is a road into the toilet. This is, you're done here. Our government is in greater debt than it's ever been by all measures. The mass of our people are in levels of debt we have never seen before in our country. Everybody is hooked into everybody by an insane layering of debts upon debts upon debts. If we have an economic downturn, it is going to ramify very quickly. Debts like this are like tinder in a forest. You light a little match somewhere and it goes like gasoline or something because everything is interconnected with this level of debt. We have for the first time in, this, in a century a serious, well-organized, powerful, rapidly growing competitor. The United States hasn't had that. The Soviet Union was never a competitor of this country. Its economic capabilities were minuscule but not now anymore. Now we have the People's Republic of China, and that's a very serious competition. How is that going to play out? At this point, you can watch with a certain amount of pathetic empathy as our vice president travels all the way over there to rattle her saber, which is a kind of little rusty to make noise about the South China Sea, which is over there, and about which the United States can't do anything, except try to scare people. And having just lost a war with one of the poorest countries on this planet over 20 years, the persuasiveness of this kind of saber rattling looks pathetic. I'm embarrassed. I read French and German newspapers all the time to see how they look at the world. And it's embarrassing. They're embarrassed for the United States by this display of, of petulance, of meanness. I mean, you lost. You were driven out. You couldn't do it. You can't do it in Iraq either. You couldn't do it in Vietnam. You fought three big wars in Asia and you lost them all. And you're the richest country with the biggest military in the world. And you've been fighting some of the poorest countries on earth and you can't do it. I understand all the complex reasons, but this is a situation in which it looks to me like we have one dead end after another. American companies are still leaving the United States, looking for what? Lower wages in the rest of the world? Still plenty of that going around. But here's the bigger one. The biggest market in the world is the People's Republic of China. If you multiply the number of people there whose income is rising quickly and dramatically and has been for 20 years, it's there, not here. And every, every MBA student in this country graduating from a, a business school knows, if he or she knows anything, that if you want to do well as a corporate executive, go where the costs of production are low and where the market is growing the fastest. Hello, that's called China. And that's why they're going, because that's what they were taught to do. And yes, you can tell them it isn't patriotic. They'll listen. They'll shed maybe two tears, and then they'll go ahead and do exactly what they've been doing for the last 30 years, 
while some politician covers it all over with verbiage. So no, pardon my long-winded answer, our economy is not in good shape. It's in really bad shape. And don't be impressed by the big numbers, you know, um, infrastructure for three and a half trillion dollars. Is that a big number? Absolutely. But it covers 25 to 30 years of not doing the maintenance of infrastructure that anyone who ever had any infrastructure knows. You neglect your driveway for 30 years, your car will suffer. You can't do that. And if you let that happen, the cost eventually to fix it will be much greater than what it would have cost had you done it periodically the way everybody knows needs to be done. But in our strange political system, politicians do well by going to the people and saying, you see, I didn't raise your taxes. Aren't I wonderful? But there is, in my view, some optimism. I know there's a lot of people on the left who don't want to see anything good. But I got to tell you, Professor Wolf, I've been on the ground across the country last six, seven years. I don't remember covering worker strikes. I don't remember cover, covering much uh, worker or organizing uh, right now. I mean, in the last six months, you have the coal miners in Alabama, the Frito-Lay workers in Kansas. Uh, now you have Nabisco workers striking all over the country, workers trying to organize in uh, at Amazon uh, in Alabama and now New York. And I just spoke with Starbucks workers who are now working to form a union. Uh, I mean, literally, you had 20 years, 2001 was the last year where you had even north of 20 work stoppages. So after that, you, I mean, labor, I mean, labor has basically been hibernating for 30 years, but now you have all of this. So to me, what you're talking about is structurally, we're not gonna get massive change from DC for a lot of reasons, which we could talk about, but how do you feel seeing, I mean, it seems like every week or so we're seeing more workers collectively coming together, which maybe that could evolve. I don't know if it's a general strike or some, you know, uh, one-off protest, but hell of a better, hell, hell of a lot better than workers in fetal position uh, in fear for the last 20 years. I couldn't agree more. I, I think that we've come to the end of the rope in many ways for American culture and that the hope of the future are those kinds of shoots, little green shoots, if I could play with the metaphor that you point to, I would mention others. There's an absolutely heroic strike, been going on for months by nurses in Massachusetts. Very important, that kind of struggle, because nurses have, in many parts of the country, been pioneers, been on the edge, the, 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 the vanguard, if you like, of, of determination. I think it's fueled in part by feminism, by the whole, you know, Me Too, all of these demands of women to have a different position in this society than what had been given in previous generations. But that's always a powerful source of unionization when other factors come in and reinforce it. The teaching assistants across the system of the University of California, the biggest public education system in this country, are busily organizing. They're trying to unionize where they haven't been before. They are militant. They are getting their act together. 
you're right. The labor movement has been in a 50 or more year decline every year in terms of membership. It's a very, very sad situation. I also think that Americans are going to discover and contribute to the rest of the world new kinds of organizing that we haven't seen uh, before. A little bit like the French, you know, over the last two years developed this thing which we call here in English the Yellow Vest Movement. This massive, quickly organized, but not by the unions, not by the traditional left parties. I mean, they were in there participating, but this was really a massive people's movement that prevented the Macron government from doing half a dozen things it announced it would do, and nobody will stop us, and we're going to redo the pensions, and all of it was stopped. The, 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 the Yellow Vest movement, very successful. They had hopes to do even more, and that is tragic. And COVID made it impossible to get the people together the way they had been together in the early phases before COVID hit. Um, but I think that that's a new contribution to political action. I think Americans are playing around with it. Look, it takes time. What I think you're discovering, certainly what I discover, is that the appetite in the United States, particularly of young people, but not only young people, the appetite for basic social criticism and basic social change is greater now than at any time in my lifetime. I became politically active in the 1960s, as people in my generation often did. But this is much deeper. This is much broader. This is much more fundamental in the questions being asked and the propositions being put forward. So I'm not at all pessimistic. I think this society is at a kind of turning point. I think we have been there pretty much since the 1970s. We were able to postpone the confrontation with our problems in a whole variety of ways, borrowing money, I'm an economist, so I see it through those lenses. But borrowing money has been the single most important one. The real wage, let me drive this home. The real wage in the United States is marginally better today than it was in the 1970s. We've had no, the, whatever money more we got was lost in the rising prices of what we had to buy. So how did we raise our standard of living, which we did over the last 30, 40 years? By borrowing, we became pioneers, not in the covered wagon going across the plains, but in the level of money borrowing that our working class undertook because you confronted them with the following option. You want to live the American dream? You want to think of yourself as a success? You want to keep up with your neighbors, with the car you drive, the vacation you take, the home you inhabit? Well, then your wages are not going to enable you to do that. So you either fall by the wayside in terms of your own self-sense or you borrow money. You borrow for your home, the mortgage. You borrow for your car, the car payments. You borrow with your credit card, even for the water you buy at the corner store. And then the really big new one, student debt. To get your kid through college, more urgent now to get a job than ever before, you've got to lay out, well, we know, average indebtedness right now in this country, 
$40,000. One out of four adults in this country is in debt for student loan with an average monthly payment of $400. Wow, that's being pulled out so that you could have an education when all the major countries in Europe, excepting the United Kingdom, basically gives you that for free. What's going on? You can't keep all of these problems, these comparisons, these issues bubbling up in people's lives and think you can go on forever mouthing off the traditional Republican and, for that matter, the traditional Democratic Party establishment, blah, 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 about a situation that's de declining. If you do, you're practicing as profound a problem of denial as any psychologist has ever laid out. And what we're doing is following, in the worst sense of the term, what the British did. Their empire has been dead for a century. They still quite can't get themselves to grasp that it's over, that they are a small secondary island off the continent of Europe. That's really hard if you were once the British Empire. But if we don't learn, we're headed in exactly the same direction. There's nothing to do for it if we don't do something radical now. And that's the planet is on fire. Uh, the drought, uh, I think Vancouver was like 120 degrees two weeks ago. Uh, you're, I mean, obviously the hurricanes that are increasing and increasing. Uh, we're not even talking about the uh, water shortage across the world. And in America, you were talking about those bankers. Well, they're investing more and more in water. I wonder why. So all of these economic and structural, I mean, let's just call it what it is, uh, stupidity, corruption, ignorance. I mean, it's all going to look like child's play if we don't do anything right now uh, about the climate crisis. And even in this $3.5 reconciliation package, and I think there are some good things in there, but I agree with you. It's not the scale of the problem. I mean, it's band-aids to a gunshot wound. Um, what are your thoughts on in the context of everything you've been talking about? I mean, we're basically at a point where they're telling us it's already too late. Here's the, the strange irony, the way it plays out in my, in my thinking. I do have, for a whole host of personal reasons, fairly often occasion to speak with uh, big businessmen and women in this country. I've lived in the United States all my life. I've worked here all my life. I was born in Ohio, right in the middle of the country, all the rest. Um, they know, many of them, about the climate issue. But their problem, which I, I become aware of when I speak with them, goes something like this. We have been successful in our lives by playing the capitalist game. We look around for investment opportunities that seem relatively low risk, relatively high payoff. We work very hard to identify those opportunities and then we move to take advantage of them. We get into production. We hire people to do the work. We hire people to find the markets for what we produce, goods and services. 
and it has made us grow and it has made us wealthy and it has made us pillars of our communities and so on. And yes, the climate is a terrible problem, but we wouldn't know any other way to deal with it than to continue what we've been doing because it has worked so well for us. And then if I push them and I say to them, yes, but you know, the, the water, they say, yeah, but I live in a community where we filter all the water. We have very expensive filters. We take the city water. It's all filtered in a way before it even enters our plumbing in each of our uh, homes. And if you continue this conversation, you begin to hear they have escapes. They think they can escape and they have found escapes and they credit their ability to afford the escapes to the money they made uh, in the course of all of their activity. I right, make a long story short. They're stuck. They're stuck. They understand there are big problems, but they, they think somebody more equipped to handle them, some politician, somebody else is going to be able, they hope, to solve that problem. It's not their expertise. It's not what they know how to do. It's not what they do well. And they, they don't mind giving some money to an environmental movement organization. They believe it. They think people should understand these things better than they do. They are worried. They have a relative who lived near a fire somewhere in Napa County in California. Yeah, yeah. They don't deny all of this, but it's sort of they look at me and they say, what do you expect me to do? And, you know, it reminds me when they do that, that the conversation I used to have about poverty People feel badly for those folks who live in doorways. I live in New York City. You can't walk five blocks without stumbling over people who are living in the doorway, who have nothing. We have many, many, many thousands of them in one city. I mean, it's a big city, but it's one city. And I talk to these same people, and they're empathetic. They feel bad about it. They give some money to help develop shelters or to have their church, uh, have a free food program. But beyond that, they look at me, what do you want me to do? I'm working very hard. I'm providing good jobs for a lot of people. And you begin to understand that everybody is stuck in this situation. And if you read books about what happened at the end of the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the British Empire, you will hear very similar stories. We look back and say to ourselves, how could they not see this problem overtaking them and that problem? How could they be so blind? How could they be so blasé? About That's what they're going to say about us. That's what they're going to say about us. And, and we... And, our defenders in the future will find those of us who had podcasts or wrote articles or books and said something. And then the question will only be a little bit different. Well, there were some voices, as by the way, there always have been. Right. Well, why weren't they listened to? Why weren't they? I have a right. friend who's a reporter. 
Well, I don't mind telling you his name, Robert Henley. And uh, he's worked for CBS and a lot of uh, folks. He published a book a few weeks ago, which we worked on with him, called, and he came up with a fantastic title. Uh, Robert Henley, Stuck Nation. All one word, Stuck Nation. It's been a, a kind of a, a flashlight in the darkness for me. It captures what I want to say in answer to your question. We have capable people, smart people, skilled people. Americans are as capable as anybody else. But we are stuck, and the things are falling apart around us, and we don't get unstuck, most of us. Younger people, people in movement because they can't stand it anymore, like those strikes you pointed out a few minutes ago, that's the people who aren't stuck anymore. And I'm afraid it's to them that we have to turn our hopes that they can galvanize provoke, inspire the rest of us to get unstuck. I don't, I, by the way, as I told you, I'm an optimistic person. Part of me is more excited by the movement I see around me in the United States than all my analysis tells me about the economy. I only talk about the economy because Americans want to hear about it. Economic literacy, I hope this won't be misunderstood. Economic literacy in this country is very low. I don't know what that's about. I think my profession, professional economics professors, what I am, we have done one terrible job. We must have scared away generations of young people from the courses we tried to teach. Either it was too technical or too boring or too depressing. I don't know what it was, but the understanding is just really low. And I think well, you could thank the media for that as well. The media too treated in the, the it's awful. It's, it's just, and then the politicians are, you know, doing PR with statistics. So you can't keep straight what the heck is going on. It's a terrible set of circumstances. And, and, and it gives me always that image that that cousin of mine once gave me. Imagine people on a beach and they're all facing away from the water in towards the sand and the, and the countryside. But coming in from the ocean is a tsunami. And you're the one who's facing the ocean and you're trying to gesticulate to get them to turn around so they can see they shouldn't be facing you. They're gonna be washed away by this and you can't get them to turn around. They insist on looking this way and the, the wave is coming and the wave is gonna overwhelm them. I have that sense. I really do. Uh, I'm just hoping there are enough people coming out of the countryside that they will eventually, in some last minute, get people to understand. I was hoping that, that the disaster in, in Afghanistan would. But very quickly, our media turned us to have empathy for the people trying to get on the airplanes to leave the airport. And it's easy to have empathy. That's a pathetic, horrible spectacle. Reminds me of what I remember seeing in 1975 about Vietnam's airport, uh, Saigon's airport too. But you know, that's not the lesson we need to learn about that at the very end, you leave behind people who are now trapped by what they did who they associated with when the wind changes. 
That is awful. But that's not the major lesson here. What did we do for 20 years? Going to war against two Muslim countries, poor ones, with all the apparatus of our military. Oh, what happened? What, what, what mentality produced it? Why did we stay there? By the way, European newspapers referred to it as the American loss in Afghanistan at least two years ago that I could see in the media there, then. So for the rest of the world, these are questions and no one knows the answer. Everyone I know in Europe, part of my family is European, is rethinking, and I'm going to be a little blunt now, but I want to make the point. They're asking themselves this question. Are we allied to the wrong country? Is some, Trump and everything since is making it harder and harder to answer that question the way it was answered for the previous 50 years. We are at a major turning point and Americans don't seem to want to see what the issue is, let alone have the kinds of debates and conversations that might produce a good answer. You know, let's just call it what it is. There's been a circular firing squad on the left uh, the last year or so. Uh, it's not the first time the left has kind of eaten itself alive. Uh, the main focus seems to be on defining who is left and who is not, who is pure and who is not, um, who's a sellout and who's righteous. Um, you know, for me, I don't really give it. I don't care if you damn enter. I don't care if you damn exit. I don't care if you're third party. None of that matters. But I just see in this, in terms of the scale of the problems we're talking about, and we're talking life or death kind of issues here, and it could get worse. I just see kind of this nihilism breeding in that there's so much more focus on personalities. There's so much more focus on who's not. 1,000% with us on checking the box for every single category. Uh, there's there's so much focus on, you know, no, no, we're done with electoral politics. We're only going to do, we're only going to focus here that it just seems like we're doing the work of the plutocrats for them because <laughs> there's no organization on the left aside from, frankly, the strikes, the union drives that we've been talking about. I wanted to ask you, not singling out any anyone, but uh, do you think this is helpful? Because I even get criticized when I, I, I dare uh, credited some of these uh, squad members for voting as a block now, for uh, saying, no, we're not going to vote for your privatized bipartisan infrastructure deal if we don't get X, Y, and Z here. I don't think it's enough, but they also can't snap their fingers and give us Medicare for all and all these things. So I just wanted to ask you in terms of kind of the temperature of the left, uh, where do you see things? Well, I guess you and I are pretty close in, in terms of what I would see. I, I, I'm, I'm always depressed by the left in this country. I ascribe that to having been <clears throat> pushed so far out of the political life of the country as a whole for so long that it has lost sight of what it takes to win. 
And so if you've given up, even if you're not conscious of it, if you've given up the idea you could ever win, then you become vulnerable to thinking, okay, we can't win, but at least I can be right. I can have the right answer, the right program, the right analysis. And that's that's a dead end. That never stops. That, that produces as many groupuscules as there are people and the splitting and all the rest of it. For me, I take my cue from one of the great thinkers on the left in the 20th century who thought about these things, uh, the Italian leader Antonio Gramsci. He developed, and by the way, if people here are not familiar with him, G-R-A-M-S-C-I, uh, an Italian thinker born in Sardinia, that island off of the Italian mainland, um, leader of the Italian Communist Party, imprisoned for most of much of his adult life by Benito Mussolini, uh, who took over the, the fascism in, in, in Italy in the 20s. Um, but he, he made good use of his time in, in Mussolini's prison. He wrote a series of books called um, The Prison Notebooks. His sense of how to do politics as a radical anti-capitalist in Italy. Uh, he was active in the north, in the, in the area around Torino in Italian, Turin in English, um, and bu very busy building the union of the workers at Fiat, the, the largest automobile producer uh, ever in Italy, then and now. Uh, he understood politics to be the development of a coalition of people who respect that they are different, each of them in the coalition, but that they need each other and they have an understanding. I'm going to help you in that part of this coalition you work on and you're going to help me and we're not going to agree on what the most important thing is. Uh, that's not in the nature of the kind of work we do. We are going to agree that you believe enough in me and what I'm doing to help me on condition that I give you the same, uh, I honor you with the same understanding. Um, he talked about how you can get political power. He loved this term hegemony. And when you see that used these days, he's really the person who worked that out. How you build a hegemonic block. How do you put together all of the different elements that exist in a society, identifying what you don't have that has to be created, identifying how to get your different parts to help each other. I take all of that dreadfully seriously. I learned it from him, but it's very applicable uh, to the United States today. So let me give you an example. I'm grateful that AOC is there. Does that mean I agree with everything she does? Of course not. She doesn't agree with everything I do, to, for sure. But she's playing a very important role in opening up the whole possibility of what left socialist type people might be able to do. She's teaching Americans, you can win political office. Isn't easy, 
you are then part of a political institution that will hem you in in certain ways. But that area is not closed to us as the left thought it was. You can. That's why Bernie is so important. He stood up in 2016 and said, yes, I'm a socialist. I'm going to run. And you're wrong that it's going to be a political suicide. I met with a very high official of the Democratic Party, an old friend of mine, shortly after Bernie announced. I said, what do you think he's going to do? He said, we don't care. If he gets 1%, it'll be a miracle. If he gets 2 we will all, uh, you know, celebrate the, the, the shock of it all. They had no idea, none of them. And these were not unsympathetic people, but they had no idea what might happen, what kind of support there would be for the word. And granted, people don't know exactly what socialism means, especially in this country. All of that has to be now developed. Uh, half of the questions I get, and, and I... I'm pretty well known now so that we get quite a flood of emails. Half the questions I get are questions in which Americans are trying to make up for lost time. They want to be told, what is this socialism? Without, without any nastiness. They just want, what? What, is, what do they mean, socialism in Denmark? What's it got to do with China or Cuba or... Perfectly good questions, appropriate questions. But these are things you should have learned years and years ago and then processed so we can see where your brain takes that stuff. Instead, we're taking early baby steps. And for me, I think the political issue is that way. For me, the two biggest things the left lacks now is organization, pulling all of this stuff together, and a clear programmatic focus. What exactly are we going to do if in fact we get the power to try to try to do it? What? What what are you what am I voting for? I'm Mr. or Ms. America. What am I voting for if I vote for you people? I'm disgusted with the ones we have. You don't have to give me your criticisms. I got my own. I, I, I know that's useless. But you, what are you? Why should I even believe you're different from them? Well, well, tell me something that makes it clear. And that means we have to give very good, they don't have to be detailed. We don't have to have a blueprint. People are halfway with us because they want to change. They don't like what exists. They've lost confidence in the leaderships of both major political parties. You have the on the outs Trump and the on the outs progressive uh, Democrats threatening both of the establishments in their different ways towards different ends. But you can see it's very open-ended now. We need to get together, figure out what we can agree on as the key things we're gonna do and then make the case that Doing these things will move us in a good direction and then build an organization where we can help each other get that message out. Those are the things we need. We don't have the organization and we don't have the agreed focus. So I work. It's not a choice, really. It's where I can work now. I focus on what we ought to be saying we're going to do. That, that's where I work. But I recognize the importance of organization. 
I am a believer in the labor movement, so you're not going to have any problem with me when you point to areas where there's percolation. Unions have demonstrated the ability under extraordinary negative pressure to survive. Have they done all they could? Of course not. Have they made mistakes? Enormous ones. But they've survived, and that's a testimony to that they mean something to people. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived. And they've survived better than a whole lot of other institutions on the left. And that's important for good reasons and bad, but that's an important thing. And they're underrepresented. They can grow. And for folks who don't know their history, the labor movement grew spectacularly in the 1930s. It, that was the greatest growth the American labor movement ever had in the depths of the depression when people were really down. For those of you who remember, if you read the novel of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, that's how down people got. They wrote novels like that. They read novels like that. They produced the labor movement, a spectacular explosion of millions of people joining the labor movement, joining unions. These people had never been in a union before, and their parents had never been in a union before. They came to it in a mass shift to the political left. And I only say it because the notion it can't happen now is undone by our own history and not that long ago. Why not now? Especially when everything else hasn't worked. We're in the kind of nice position of saying, well, why don't you give the left a shot? Give us a chance. Show sure. you're going to do much worse than what we got here. I make that argument all the time, and I wouldn't be doing that if, if it didn't get me the kind of response I think it would get us if we were willing to do it. 